Hi. Hello and welcome to Talk Gnosis. I'm your host, Deacon Jonathan Stewart, joined by my co-host, Jason Memel. Hello, Jason. Hello there. Uh, amazing guest for an amazing show. Today we have Dr. Amy Hale, who's going to speak to us about Ifil Kuyung. Uh, <laughs> she will correct my pronunciation of said artist's name many times. Uh, Dr. Hale is the author of an entire book about uh, Ifil, uh, Ifil Kuyung, genius of the fern loved gully. Uh, I have my copy on order. You should get yours as well. Uh, before we dive into uh, the life and the work of this fascinating and important artist uh unfortunately we do have to do a bit of a commercial some begging a little song and dance uh i gotta get up the the organ uh the the hand grind organ and the monkey um jason people probably look at us you and i uh an independent theater artist and a uh meditation coach and uh freelance copywriter and be like what do they do with all their riches what do they do with their vast wealth? Well, I'm here, unfortunately, to break a bubble for many of our listeners, many of our watchers. Uh, the arts, uh, you know, basically pay poverty wages. We're not complaining. We chose our lot in life. We like it. But it does mean as we follow our passions and our bliss uh, and hopefully create great things for the world, for our day job, that we need your financial support to be able to do this show. Uh, but the good news is, is you can do it for a very small amount of money. So for as little as a dollar per piece of media per month, you can go to patreon.com slash Gnostic and sign up there. You get uh, early access to all of our shows. And I don't know, you can have my phone number. I just, we're trying to think of more bonuses, but we don't want to lock stuff up behind a paywall. So if you, you know, just message me if there's anything we can do for you or anything you want, or you have any ideas of stuff to give to Patreon uh, patrons. Uh, you can also do one-time donations if you don't want to sign up for a monthly recurring. And, and by the way, I, I mentioned it's a dollar per piece of media over on Patreon, as little as that. You can also set a cap on that. So if you only want to spend two, three, four dollars, what have you. You can also do one-time donations at paypal.com slash Gnostic, and you can also help us out uh, because we know uh, you may not be able to do it financially, but you like what we're doing by telling people about the show, sharing the show on social media, taking your favorite episode, emailing it to a friend, just telling people mouth to ear, that's very effective, uh, liking and subscribing, leaving reviews, all this helps us immensely. So finally, the commercial is over. <laughs> Dr. Hale. Um, can you first tell us, how did you discover uh, Ifil Kuyin, and what drew you to her work? <laughs> sure, and I, I, I'm happy to, uh, to correct the pronunciation. It happens all the time. Uh, the, the, the first sentence of the book is, it's pronounced Ithel, and it's Ithel Colhoun. Um, I, I, dis I discovered uh, Colhoun's work when I was working at the Institute of Cornish Studies in Cornwall, I had been engaged in a long project. My doctoral research was actually on Celtic identities in Cornwall. And I was kind of comparing people who were involved in the Cornish uh, ethnic, ethno-nationalist movement, the, what is known as the Cornish movement, and people who were interested in Celtic spirituality. And so it's kind of broadly comparing those two groups. And I was having lunch with a friend of mine. This was about 2000, near 2000, so a long time ago now. And she said to me, oh, you should check out the work of Ithel Colhoun. And this is my friend, Dr. Melissa Hardy, who runs the West Cornwall Art Archive. And she said, oh, yeah, she's a druid. She was 
really into, uh, she was a surrealist and she was really up your alley. And I was thinking, how come I did a whole PhD on this and have never heard of her? So I went to the Tate. Oh, also she had, she had done a book called The Living Stones, which was one of the first earth mysteries guides to Cornwall in the late 1950s. So she was really ahead of her time with that too. And so I went to the Tate and they, at this point they hadn't even archived any of her material, but they were, they were holding her, her archives. And I said, Hey, can I have a look? And they just wheeled out all of these boxes with all of this incredible material in it. And it was in looking at that work that I really felt like I was discovering again, somebody whose voice really needed to be heard. And that was 20 years ago. And I think, you know, we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but she really is having a, uh, a cultural moment because at the point when I had started looking into her work in her life, she was kind of just a footnote in art history. People had known about her. Some occultists knew about her because of her occult writings. But even though it hadn't been that long since she had passed away at that point, she was kind of in danger of, of um, kind of heading into a bit of obscurity. But yeah, that's not going to be her future. Absolutely not. So yeah, that's, that's how I found out about her. And I've really been working with her material in one form or another for the past 20 years. Wow. And can you give us a, a brief biographical sketch of her life, sort of, you know, the elevator speech uh, about her biography? Sure. She was born in India in 1906 to a longstanding colonial family. Her, her, her family, several generations had been uh, colonial administrators in India. So she really had very long roots there, even though she was sent to to Britain when she was about one, which was really very customary for colonial families at that time. They would send their, their infants you know, back to England to be raised. But this was something that really had a huge impact on her identity because she was very drawn to the culture cultures of India and particularly their spirituality. Well, of course, there are many spiritualities in India. She particularly resonated with animism and with the Tantra that is found in Northern India, which is where her family was located. And she always kind of felt like she was really ripped away from that life unwillingly. And that kind of caused her to have a number of, I think today we might call it an, an identity crisis. And so she really found her own sense of identity through identifying with her Celtic ancestry. She had ancestors from both Ireland and Scotland, and that's how she ended up in Cornwall. But prior to that, she had a fairly good education for a woman. She, had a, uh, she was educated at Cheltenham Ladies College and later on at a uh, Cheltenham School for Design. And then she completed a diploma at the Slade which is Britain's and has been considered Britain's top art school. So she had a very good, solid, conventional art, uh, practical art foundation. And then in the, the 30s, she kind of traveled around a little bit and decided to pursue her life as a professional artist. She never really had conventional employment to speak of. And in 1936, she went to the London Exhibition London Surrealist Exhibition, and that's really what changed her life. Prior to that, she was doing a lot of botanical sketches, uh, architectural sketches, 
but really she resonated with surrealism and she joined the British surrealists in the late 30s, although that was a fairly short-lived relationship. She ended up leaving the British surrealists in 1940 for a number of reasons. It's commonly thought that she left because of her interest in the occult, which was very long-standing. But it was that, and also the fact that they wanted her to be an exclusive member of that group, and also commit to political causes that she might not have really wanted to commit to. So she ended her career with the Surrealists in 1940, but she was a lifelong adherent to Surrealism herself, and it was absolutely the cornerstone of her work. It was the way that she could really express the occultism that was so deeply important to her and her sensibilities. Then in the late 1940s, she started a relationship with Cornwall. She rented a property down in Lamorna in West Cornwall, and she moved to Cornwall full-time in 1959, which is where she spent the rest of her life uh, until 1988. And through that time, she created about 5,000 or more artworks. She wrote novels. She wrote short stories. She wrote poems. She wrote travelogues. So she was a very, very busy, very dedicated woman with an absolutely incredible artistic legacy from her entire life. Wow. And uh, can you tell us more about specifically her art career, her style? Like what's special about her work? And, um, and you mentioned that she broke with the Surrealists, uh, you know, as an organization, but she was still inspired by Surrealism her whole life, even when it fell out of fashion. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about, uh, about the, the medium that she worked with, with visual art? Uh, sure, actually, be sure. Oh, before we get into that, I actually I want to uh, push the question back to John because uh, I know that that uh, her art style was something that you initially got connected with at first. So part of me actually just wants to ask, why did you get interested in Eiffel? And then, uh, and then yeah. So how that how that led us all to talking now? Oh yes. Well, you know, I, I've become quite interested in the exploration of the unconscious and art that is the exploration of the unconscious, of course, I would argue is, is all art, but um, uh, particularly all good art. And looking at the, the surrealists, I find that, you know, they're one of the greatest expressions of that um, and had specific techniques for working with the unconscious. So, of course, uh, already having an interest in the occult, uh, when I found out uh, about this, uh, this writer, author, and artist who was also a very impressive uh, and interesting occultist. It's just, wow, these are all my interests. So <laughs> also, I, you know, I, I have a sort of a lingering interest in, um, I'll just say that Celtic stuff. Um, people may have picked up on my on my accent. I, I grew up on Prince Edward Island, uh, particularly when I was young, but still now it's, it's uh, I mean, there's only about 200,000 people there, but it's statistically one of the most Celtic places in the world. Um, you got almost more Scottish people there than Scotland. <laughs> um, I grew up in a town called Cornwall. So, uh, so all of my interests sort of coming together in this in this one figure. Yeah, yeah that's kind um, of how I discovered her too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like I, uh, so for me, she was completely new when I discovered her through John mentioning it on on Facebook or something like ages ago. But then, uh, like, yeah, just digging in, uh, particularly just how striking the art is. Like it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's like nothing I had seen before. And so um, it's like seems like such an interesting mix between what I would what I was used to from surrealism and what I what I wasn't expecting. So yeah, I felt like that just might be an interesting layer to add to um, to John's question about like her art, her style, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, thank you, Jason. And uh, yeah, please, Dr. Hale. That, no, that that's really that's a really kind of helpful way to start talking about her art and what she did with the surrealists and really how she conceived of her own artistic project. And I agree with you, Jason, that there's there's some stuff if if you're looking if you're looking at her art kind of, you know, through, and you're not really sure what period you're looking at. Her earlier stuff, which was like from, let's say from the mid thirties, even through the early forties, she had a very representational style initially. And so very early on, she starts, you know, the way I see it is that she, she, was, she was doing very, very representational botanical work. And then her botanical work started getting sexy. Like the flowers were no longer flowers in the kind of Georgia O'Keeffe sense, but some of her stuff was even way more explicit than O'Keeffe ever was. Right. And then she starts moving into as she starts encountering like her early surrealist stages. She starts doing kind of the the dreamlike imagery that a lot of people associate with surrealism. You know, the work of Magritte, the work of Dali, where you get things that are kind of looking maybe a little bit more incongruous. They're, they're, you're not sure what you're looking at. And her work during this period was really heavily uh, influenced by metaphor and mythology. She was specifically interested in ideas of the wasteland, the dying, uh, the dying god, um, the relationship between the like the body and the land. So we this is why we see a lot of figures, not only of say um, uh, what we might say vulvic images that we might say were in trees that are very lively, but we also see images of decayed men that are uh, on the on the beach where you know the the men barely have bodies at all. So we see this very kind of mythic. Uh, quality to her work during that period. But in 1939, she starts hanging out with a group of surrealists. She goes to Paris and she meets this group of surrealists who are interested in psychomorphology. And they have, I think, kind of a different take on the relationship between surrealist art and the unconscious. And I'm not sure, I think that as Colhoun's own artistic project develops, she doesn't see surrealism quite as much as a bridge to the unconscious as she does a bridge to wider dimensions. Mm. And that the subconscious itself is actually a gateway to other worlds, other portals, where you can have contact with other beings. Yeah. And this was something that was being explored by Gordon Angela Ford and Roberto Mata before they had this kind of surrealist party in France in 1939. And she spent the summer there. And then after that, we start seeing that she's engaging in ideas with the fourth dimension and other you know, kind of other dimensional beings. And this works really well with her occultism. So ultimately when her surrealism is much more based than in automatism. We start seeing this, things start moving in a much less figurative manner after the early 1940s. And she starts exploring 
these, this whole range of automatic processes that she's using almost like divination. So one decalcomania, which is a common surrealist technique. What she would do is she would kind of, you know, she would prime the paper with different colors and then put another sheet down on top of that, on top of the paint, and lift it up and then work it to see what kind of images would come out. Now, in a more conventional surrealist way of doing that, you might be, say, probing your subconscious to see what would be coming out, what kind of forms that you were getting. But my view is that Colquhoun was, first of all, she was priming the canvas with colors that held significance to her. And then she was getting into or adopting this as a form of trance. So that she was perhaps receiving images, not from her own mind, but from somewhere else entirely. And I think that's one thing that differentiates her and a few other surrealists from the way that many surrealists would have conventionally interpreted the surrealist project of the link with the unconscious. She was seeing it as something that was really a, uh, a touchstone to something that was much, much larger. Yes, yes. Um, can you elaborate? So, so you mentioned one of her techniques. Can you talk about some of her other methods for creating art and working with the unconscious or working with the unconscious as a bridge to these other realities? Sure. Uh, so one of the things that she would do, uh, she used a technique called fumage, where she would take a piece of paper and then gently guide, glide it over a flame and then work with the images that would come out of the flame. And she, she, um, she associated this with the element of fire. Mm -hmm. She would also take, um, like, what am I looking for? Uh, chalk. She would take chalk and she would put it on the surface of water. And then she would put a paper down on, on the water and she would see what images she might create from there. Her fumages were so good. One of them even looked like a self-portrait, which I thought was really quite quite amazing. Wow. Yeah, she was very talented in that respect. So she would do these, she would, she would use these elementally. She would try to connect with elemental spirits or forces in the way that she would use automatic techniques. She would also use color. And I think we'll probably be getting into her tarot deck later, which I think is one of the most advanced examples of her, her surrealism and her use of, of automatic processes later on in life. But that was just, she would take the colors and she would kind of drip them on the paper. And she would have these incredible sweeping forms of enamel that she would use to, to kind of coax them into a form. But at the same time, the form itself would kind of be generated from the process. And for her, the most important aspect of those were the colors that she was using because she believed, she was very interested, very involved in the Golden Dawn system, which is, a lot of it is, is uh, based on, on, on color and color theory. And so she would use Golden Dawn color themes which, which argue that, that colors are themselves forces and that they themselves are energies. And she would use color as a way of connecting with, with various otherworldly forces. And I think that understanding the, color, uh, the Golden Dawn color scheme is really one of the big keys to, uh, to understanding her work. Hmm. 
Well, before we, we kind of get into her occultism, her understanding of the occult, her use of the occult, her occult art and writing, uh, Jason, before we, before we jump into that, do you have any uh, questions, comments, uh, things that have been beamed into your, your mind? Oh, uh, there we go. There we uh, go. I just fixed my muting problem. Um, the because uh, we were talking about how like there were groups that she wasn't part of because or or couldn't stay or didn't stay with because of uh, uh, her maybe lack of desire to, to kind of be controlled by one group or another. Um, but uh, I guess were there any other artists that she was looking to or feeling like she was working within a uh, sort of a, a communication with their network with, like I'm trying to think of um, artists that even vaguely remind me of of her, like sort of Venn diagram overlap of like uh, what was the name Austin Osmond Spare would be maybe like a you know like at least vaguely where you could go like yeah I could see where you could talk about two of these artists uh, was she communicating with any other artists like that or in any kind of dialogue with them? She she wasn't. She now she did meet Spare. She met him one time where she did an interview with him. I think it was right before his death, which is unfortunate because they they have friends in common. Obviously, they were both friends with Kenneth and Steffi Grant, and they had a lot. I, I think they saw the world in fairly similar ways. We even see later on down the road where she uses some Spare type sigilization in her own magic. So I think they would have had a lot in common, but I don't think that he was around long enough for the two of them to develop any other kind of enduring friendship. She did have artistic communication with Steffi Grant, who was herself an esoteric artist. And I suspect that they shared quite a bit in terms of their own interests and process. But she really saw herself as a, an, a Bretonian Orthodox Surrealist. She felt after she split with the Surrealists that she was, she, she called herself the most authentic Surrealist existing in Britain. She really thought that a lot of the other Surrealists had kind of lost their way and that her own commitment to autonomy, um, automatism made her much more in tune with that particular current. And I think because possibly because of how that relationship with the Surrealists ended. So she married another Surrealist in the early 1940s and uh, Tony Del Renzio. And the two of them had this, again, very orthodox view of Surrealism. And the two of them really tried to um, kind of revive surrealism, kind of leave the other ones who had stayed on uh, behind. And so they were kind of doing their own thing. And that ended very badly. The marriage ended badly. And the other, the, the British surrealists were really terrible to them. They mocked them. They would throw fruit at their performances. And it was really emotionally devastating to her. And I feel that instead of moving on that this might have caused her to dig her heels in even further with respect to her own identity as a surrealist because that was a very very important part of her own artistic identity so even though she was you know she was doing art throughout her life she had some she had some relationships with fantastic art as it emerged and that current as it emerged especially in Europe 
but this was something that was really important to her. Well, can we dive in um, kind of uh, the, about her, her occultism? So, you know, what do you think drew her to the occult and, and what was her engagement with it? Like you mentioned uh, she was quite fond of the Golden Dawn or inspired by the Golden Dawn systems. Did, did, did she join one of the many Golden Dawn orders? Did she found orders? Uh, did she work with others? Did it seem that she had a daily practice? Um, if you could just tell us uh, just all about that, her, her engagement with the occult. Sure. So... But in her own words, she her own quest was for enlightenment. Mm. And that is that drove everything she did. I, I believe that her commitment to the occult, particularly her metacurrence within the occult, was the overriding interest in her life, her overriding preoccupation, her surrealism and everything else was in service to that, not the other way around by any stretch of the imagination. She starts becoming interested in occult and esoteric topics quite young while she's still in school. She did an alchemical, alchemically based play before she even gets to the slaves. So this is in her maybe late teens, early 20s that she starts, that we see her really artistically starting to work with alchemical ideas. Mm -hmm. She's interested in this. Uh, I think that's really one of the kind of the first flowerings that we see of her occult interest is actually in her interest in alchemy. When she moves to London and goes to the Slade, she meets her cousin, uh, Edward Garston, who was the Cancellarius of the Alpha and Omega Golden Dawn Lodge there. Okay. And she recounts this story in The Sword of Wisdom, which is her 1975 chronicle of McGregor Mathers and the Golden Dawn. And she tells the story of how she applied for membership and she was rejected. And this becomes kind of a defining moment in her entire life and her belief about her own occult destiny because she feels that she was possibly not accepted because she was a little too smart, knew a little too much. She was a member of the Quest Society. She was already giving papers there. This is in her early 20s. And she felt like she was maybe rejected as what we might call an uppity woman today. But she believed that she was touched by the current of the order. And for that reason, throughout her life, she sought orders that she believed were in some way reproducing the current of the Golden Dawn. So there were some orders that, I mean, she joined a ton of orders. Some of them she didn't stick with, but that was really her overriding interest was in that very particular kind of almost conservative hermetic current. So she never she she couldn't join the Golden Dawn because the orders by the time she was back in Britain and in a position to join magical orders at the beginning of the 1940s, a lot of the magical orders were being shut down because of World War II. So by the time they were kind of coming back online in the late 40s, early 50s, there was really no Golden Dawn Lodge to be found. So she joins the OTO. She also joined the Unfortunate Society of the Inner Light. And that one didn't work out too well for her. She was deemed unsuitable for actually initiating in that order, although she studied with them for about six years. She also chalked that up to the fact that she knew too much and asked too, too many questions and was not kind of a, a dutiful student. 
she stayed with Grant's OTO for a couple of years, but then she becomes very involved in Druidry. She was a good friend of Ross Nichols, joins his Druidic order, and then later on she joins all sorts of things. She becomes a Martinist. She was a member of the Fellowship of Isis late in her life. And her occult practice was very, very important and sustaining to her. In the early 60s, oh yeah, she becomes a co-mason. And then in the early 60s, she gets involved with Tamara Burkoon's order, the Order of the, the Pyramid and Sphinx, which is a Golden Dawn style order that had a focus on Enochian magic. And she did a lot of work with that order. She helped create a lot of documents and ritual plans and possibly she was working on a tarot deck for them. She was very, very involved with them. But then in about eight or 10 years, she fell out with them. And then that was kind of it. Yeah, she had a tendency. She was a very strong-willed woman, and I think she fell out with a lot of people quite frequently. So yes, she was very active in a lot of orders. Yeah. And uh, do you see? Um, I mean, we've already kind of touched on this, and I, I'm going to guess what the answer is. But that said, do you see connections between her uh, her artistic career, her artistic life, and her art, and her occult career and her occultism? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, I really do feel that for her, her art was a way of helping to contact, communicate with, express relationships with other planes and other beings. In that respect, I think we see that she might have more in common with somebody like a Helma F. Clint. Mm -hmm. We actually see some very common symbolism in some of her work, some of her some of her sketches that she does on sacred geometry, some of, even though the color schemes are not the same, they both have very heavy, heavy color symbolism, an interest in gender. So I think we see maybe more of a, a similarity of, of her work with, with somebody like F. Clint in that respect, and some of the other artists who are now emerging who had very strong uh, theosophical and, and spiritualist practices in the sense that they are some sort of vehicle or conduit, not necessarily for other beings themselves, not like other beings are doing the work. She was doing the work in order to connect and to provide a, a, a connection with these these other spaces. Right, right. Um, we talk a lot about the sort of the connections between art, imagination, creativity, and the, the occult on the show. So it's a topic that we're 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 quite passionate about. So it's um, it's really awesome to discover and discuss and engage with the work of of an artist like this, who of course also <laughs> sees these connections. Because I think uh, we're accurate in seeing these connections. Um, what do you find is is original, new, and exciting in in her occult work? Like, can you talk a, a bit about her her tarot deck and and other stuff that perhaps people might find groundbreaking? That's not just a a reiteration of what's come before. Well, I think one of the, the most important features about her body of work is the fact that it was created by a woman. And we have so few working records of 
occult practitioners anyway, that to see somebody whose whole life was infused with occult principles and to see this in every aspect of her work, whether it was her writing, you know, her poetry, her art, to have this record of a woman magician, particularly somebody who was interested in a hermetic current, I think that's remarkable. So it isn't even just the artifacts themselves, which are pretty amazing. It's the fact that we're looking at a very uncompromising voice of a woman magician. And I think that that's really incredible. I was initially also when I started, when I had the opportunity to see her entire artistic archive, which had been given, she uh, donated it to the National Trust when she died and it's now with the tape. When I first encountered that, I was blown away by the sex magic. <laughs> she had, she did so many pieces, not just looking at and possibly theorizing sex magic in, in a very particular way, but also just the sheer eroticism of hundreds of her pieces and what she was working on there. Those, those were absolutely incredible and I think unprecedented. So yeah, I, I think that it's, it's her voice. It's the fact that she was a, a woman, whether we look at some of her things as being formally remarkable, you know, when, when you're just, when you're looking at them, some of them are, are incredibly beautifully executed. And yes, her tarot deck, probably the first abstract tarot deck done in 1977. So yes, very groundbreaking in that respect. But I think the thing that I find most unusual is the whole package. And the fact that we have such an amazing record, not just of a woman surrealist, but but of, of a woman occultist. Yeah. Um, Jason, do you have uh, questions, things are bubbling? Does the unconscious uh, <laughs> want to speak through you? Spirits, spirits want to use your vocal cords? I, uh, I think, honestly, I'm, I'm all, almost in a way overwhelmed, I think, by how much, how fascinated I am by, uh, by her work and her perspectives. I think, like, I think one thing I, I want to really underline, though, um, is uh, uh, Dr. Hale how you pointed out her um, uncompromising, I think, uh, focus, and is I think that's something that is that does make I think really her stand out, not just among occult artists, but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the female mystics that we've experienced is the um, sort of an, an unapologetic attitude. Um, uh, one thing I'm actually almost connecting with is that John, and maybe you can speak to this, but there was a a Tarknosis episode recently about female mystics and female female like in history, and I think at one point they were saying that they would write almost like a hundred pages of vaguely apologetic uh, uh, language so that they could get to the good stuff um, yes. because they people would like tune out uh, uh, through their politeness so that they, then they could get to the meat. Whereas here, there's no there's no uh, uh, assumption of filter. I think which is just something I'm fascinated by. Yeah, so that's a question. That, yeah. no, that's a really good observation. And I've had this conversation with scholars of Hilma F. Clint in the sense that you know, she was earlier than Colquhoun, obviously, by I guess about probably about 20 years. 
And she did not claim authorship or she, she did not claim that she was the creator of those works. And I would argue that there was probably a big cultural pull not to, because there's this kind of, you know, this argument, was F. Clint the first abstract artist in that vein, or was it Kandinsky? Because Kandinsky gets all the credit for doing it. And now, you know, there's, okay, let's actually look at mostly these women artists who were who were working with abstractions, who were working in a, a spiritualist context or a spiritual context. And what is their relationship to to authorship? What is their relationship to owning their work? And yeah, there you're you're I think Jason, you hit it right on the nose that a lot of women, and let's face it, we kind of still have to do this, we have to apologize just for being and for saying the things that we want to say. And so many women just have to kind of tiptoe around any kind of of statement. And we do this, I think, unconsciously. We're 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 culturally conditioned to behave this way. And Colhoun was just not having any of it. She wasn't at all. And part of this, I think, we have to admit, is because she was also in a condition of, of privilege. Now, Hilma F. Clinton was also quite a privileged woman. And Colhoun, I, I wouldn't say that she was wealthy, but she did not, she had enough to survive and she had enough to be uncompromising. And this was something that was really important to her. Something fascinating I found about her history was that although the nature of it is not clear, we know that she had a same-sex attraction. We, she was in love with a woman in the early 30s and asked this woman to come and live with her. Now, she did not identify as a lesbian, but she, you know, I, I think that too, and, and the woman, the woman who she was in love with was saying, hey, she was she was uh, she was Greek. She was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't I, I can't really what what is your plan here? What you're gonna have me come and just live with you in your art studio in London and we're gonna do this? And I it, did it even occur to Colhoun that maybe they couldn't just do that in the 1930s? <laughs> you know, you've got to be, I think, in a particular privileged position in order to take that many risks and she did and she she had a very uh, you know a lot of the, the things that she wrote were completely unabashed you know she she wrote some things that were so utterly taboo they were it, some of her writings are just absolutely shockingly taboo and she did it because she felt she had to. These are she had to have that voice, and she wasn't going to give it away. Yeah, and uh, that actually leads in quite well to my next question, which is, uh, you know, this, this remarkable artist. We're talking about her occult career. We're talking about her art career, but she was also a writer, and she wrote fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and occult works. Can you tell us a little bit about her as a writer? Yes, because her, her writing, I believe, was just as important to her artistic identity as her, her visual arts were. So she wrote two travelogues that she is getting quite well known for. They've been reintroduced by Peter Owen, 
she did Crying of the Wind Ireland and Livingstone's Cornwall, which were her her kind of earth mysteries guides. They're really sort of their travelogues, their personal journeys, talking about the antiquities and kind of oddities of both Ireland and Cornwall. They're utterly fascinating reads today. She wrote an alchemical, she wrote several novels, right. some of which are now starting to be published, which is just great. My uh, Colhoun colleague, Richard Shillito, who is really an incredibly leading researcher. We all stand on his shoulders, any Colhoun scholars. He, he has done so much work to, to uncover her life. He's been helping to make her novels available in addition to other short writings of hers. And so she, she did in 1961, an alchemical novel, The Goose of Hermogenes, which a lot of people have actually known about for quite some time. It's this crazy alchemical novel, which is about this young woman going to her uncle's island and having all sorts of initiations and experiences there. Uh, she wrote another novel called I Saw Water, which was edited by Richard Shillitoe. Another one that's just come out called Destination Limbo. A lot of these deal with very, it's like she's kind of working with these different themes. So a lot of them are set on islands and they have magical women on them or, or priestesses and they deal with the other world. So she's kind of working through themes of, of what it means to be a magically alive and aware woman or priestess through a lot of her works. She also had another travelogue of Egypt, which was unpublished from 1966 called The Blue Anubis, which is about her travels in Egypt, which are kind of cool, especially since she was doing it at the height of her, her work with that, that the Golden Dawn type order, which would have been made the Egyptian material very resonant with her magically. So yeah, that's another interesting one as well. She also wrote hundreds of poems and she wrote a lot of essays. She wrote a lot of occult essays that are thoughtful. They show so much command of a range of occult issues. So she was, she was astonishingly prolific. I honestly don't know how the woman did it. Wow. Well, unfortunately, we, we do have to start to wrap up. But uh, I guess to close, can you tell us why she's important now in the in the 21st century? Absolutely. I think that we're, if I published this book 10 years ago, I'm not sure that it would have had the reception and the context that it does now. She's important now because I think we're seeing two related currents. One is that there's a renewed interest in the history of women involved in surrealism. You can kind of see the way that Leonore Carrington's kind of tearing up the charts right now, which is great. So we're seeing that, but we're also seeing an interest in esoteric art and occult art as something which is a, a respected form. I think previously the way that people looked at, at the occult in not just art, but also literature was that it was quirky and interesting, but nobody wanted to deal with the actual beliefs and practices of the artist. That was just almost a bridge too far for people. But now people are looking at the material and the, the view of the artist 
as an occult practitioner and what that practice was bringing to the art, not just in terms of symbolism, but also in terms of reception. How does that piece of art as an occult or esoteric piece of art build a relationship with the audience? What sort of impact does it have on the audience? And I think this sort of awareness and acceptance of this now as, as something which has impacted art and art history is helping to bring Colquhoun's work to, I think people are able to maybe understand the framework for it a little bit more than they were before. I think it's helping it to reach new audiences. And I help think that it's, it's being taken seriously in maybe a way that it certainly wouldn't have 20 years ago, and I think even 10 years ago was, was a stretch. And these things are coming together to inspire all sorts of new and young artists who are excited by the esoteric in art and who are also excited by women's art. And it's inspiring them to, to do work that is, is kind of in this vein as well. I've been working with a uh, New Zealand artist and set of artists who just did a wonderful exhibition of photography inspired by Colquhoun's work. So I think that that this is really just the beginning for her. Wow. Uh, Dr. Hill, thanks so much. It's been uh, simply an awesome show uh, finding out about this this, this amazing, amazing uh, 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 artist, occultist, writer, painter, uh, person, personality. Uh, <laughs> Can you tell us uh, uh, where people can find you online? Tell us about your book. Tell us, uh, give us your plugs. Tell us everything about Dr. Amy Hale because I know everybody listening and watching this is, is gonna want to really dive into your work. Well, sure, thanks so much. So you can find me uh, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm uh, amyhale93 there. I have a Medium blog, which is also amyhale93 on Medium. My website is uh, www.amyhale.me and you can get Genius of the Fern Loved Gully from Strange Attractor Press at their website or any good bookshop. Amazing. Okay, well, uh, the, unfortunately, we have to sign off, but thanks again, Dr. Hale. Jason, thank you so much. Uh, simply an amazing show, and I can't wait for myself to do an even deeper dive on her. So, well, thank you. Is, thank you. Okay, well, this is Deacon Jonathan Swords signing off. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>